Hi, everybody. It is Stefan Molyneux from Freedom Main Radio. I have Dr. James Smith in the box to my right. Uh, he is a chief economist, the chief economist for Parsec Financial Management in Asheville, North Carolina, and an adjunct professor at the Keenan Flagler Business School at the University of North Carolina. His economic forecasts are regularly quoted in USA Today, The Wall Street Journal, and other media around the world. During his 35-year career, he's been an economist and analyst at the Federal Reserve Board, the National Association of Realtors, Sears, Roebuck & Company, the Society of Industrial and Office Realtors, Union Carbide Corporation, the University of Texas at Austin, and Wharton Econometric Forecasting Associates, now Global Insight. He is also a member and past president of several professional economic associations, including the National Association for Business Economics, the National Business Economic Issues Council, and was co-chair of the European Council of Economists from 2001 to 2003. And he's currently slumming with us today. So <laughs> thank you so much for taking the time, Dr. Smith. I'm delighted to be uh, chatting with you, Stefan. Now, I've had a number of economic thinkers uh, from uh, Mark Faber to Peter Schiff to Doug Casey on this show who seem to view the future economic situation or potential of the United States with a somewhat jaundiced eye verging on problematic to apocalyptic. And I did dig around on the web to find people who had a bit of an alternate opinion, and I really wanted to make sure I presented both sides of the case to my audience, uh, most of whom are fairly familiar with Austrian eco economics, SMI, though, of course, I'm not an economist. And I was uh, quite intrigued by your uh, bouncy optimism, <laughs> if I can put it that way. And I was wondering if you could uh, take us through the case for uh, for hope and uh, and butterflies and uh, bright light uh, coming through the tunnel that is not a train. Well, let's hope it's not a train. Um, the uh, probably the uh, the basic reason is uh, I happen to be a native Texan, and most Texans are very optimistic people. Uh, so that's I probably come by it naturally um, to uh, to be a little more uh, point on in an economic sense. Uh, if you look at uh, U.S. economic history in any time frame you like, you know, start in 1789 or start in 1929 or start in, you know, six months ago or five years ago, uh, what you will find, um, but it's better if you start a long time ago, uh, what what you will find um, is that over the last hundred and 57 years, uh, business cycles have been getting, uh, in general, shorter, not the last one, uh, but in general, much shorter, and periods of expansion much longer, so that the ratio of uh, months of economic growth to months of economic decline has been getting bigger and bigger and bigger or lo longer as we go. Um, and you can visit... Uh, nber.org, the National Bureau of Economic Research website, and, and click on business cycle dates and satisfy yourself that that uh, is indeed a true statement. If you look uh, over the last uh, 28 years and one quarter, uh, so 117 quarters now, uh, you'll find one of them with the uh, amazing result in terms of change in real gross domestic product, GDP, of precisely 0, 0.0, uh, you'll find 10 uh, with a negative number, and uh, the other 100 and, um, 
seven are all po or 106 are all positive. Uh, so that's a little better than 10 quarters of growth for every one quarter of decline over the last 28 years. Uh, and I personally don't see any reason uh, not to expect something like that going forward uh, for the next 20 or 60 or 100 years, I suppose. If, if you want a really long-run uh, forecast, there's a great uh, tale. I have no idea whether it's true or apocryphal, uh, but fits uh, his character perfectly. Of Winston Churchill, when he was first Lord of the Admiralty, uh, and question time and the Parliament uh, being forced to uh, come up with the estimate of uh, how much uh, Her Majesty's Navy or His Majesty's Navy at the time was uh, was spending to modernize the Navy, uh, and he he said uh, you know he would have to go back to his office and uh, and get the answer, but would would bring it back the next day. And he gathered his staff and he said, uh, "How long uh, will it take us to?" Uh, to come up with the answer to uh, the member's question. And the staff caucused and concluded, uh, probably 25 years, uh, sir. And he said, perfect, I know the exact answer. I will testify on it tomorrow, uh, with the idea being, of course, that who cared? Nobody would remember what he said or any everybody would be dead. So uh, if you have a very long-run uh, uh, time horizon, you can be... Uh, quite bold. But or to paraphrase Keynes, I suppose, in the long run, we're all dead, right? In the long run, we're, that's not even a paraphrase. It's uh, it's an exact quote. Uh, in the long run, we're all dead. Uh, but uh, I suppose uh, some people on Saturday, if you want to believe those people. But in any case, uh, the, the, uh, the history uh, is on my side. Uh, we've had the, the gloom and doom people out there repeatedly, uh, and uh, we certainly had a, a nasty recession uh, from June uh, of o or December '07 until June 15th of 2009. But now we've had almost two years of uh, of decent uh, economic growth, not spectacular, but decent. And I don't see any reason we won't have uh, another six, seven, eight, maybe ten years. Uh, we will indeed have another recession down the road, uh, and uh, I can tell you exactly how to know uh, for sure that it's coming, uh, or reasonably for sure that it isn't, uh, and the way you know for sure is at some point uh, our, uh, the members of the Federal Open Market Committee, the part of the Federal Reserve System that sets monetary policy, uh, will become uh, so alarmed uh, about the threat of inflation down the road that they will uh, raise the target for the Fed funds rates uh, above uh, wherever long-term rates are at the time, uh, creating what's called an inverted treasury yield curve, which just means that 91-day treasury bills are uh, yielding more than 10-year treasury notes. Uh, whenever you see that signal, and it persists for four months or longer, that's a, a very important caveat. Uh, you can bet the farm, the ranch, the radio show, whatever, uh, that we will have a recession, uh, usually within uh, nine to 17 months. It was a little longer uh, the last time around, but we've had that 
that signal of an inverted yield curve that lasted four months or longer 17 times since 1901, and all 17 of those uh, events were followed by a recession. We had four that weren't preceded by that signal, but those were all very special circumstances that we're unlikely to see again. Right, right. And can you just uh, break down, for, I, I'd like to say for my listeners, but I think that also includes sure. me, <laughs> what the logic is. So why the shorter um, yields that are higher than longer yields, what uh, specific policies are being pursued to rein in inflation that is indicative of a, a looming recession? What, what causes that? Mm. Perfect. Uh, wonderful question. Um, the, uh, the, the people who run monetary policy the Federal Open Market Committee, that's the all of the members of the Board of Governors of the Federal Reserve System who are appointed by the President of the United States and are nominated by the President of the United States and confirmed by the United States Senate, and uh, all of the presidents of the 12 regional Federal Reserve Banks uh, who are selected by uh, their shareholders who are the member banks in their districts. Um, the, those 19 people, if, they're, if, if we have all seven governors, uh, constitute the Federal Open Market Committee. Only 12 of them get to vote at any given time, but they all talk. Um, the way that uh, uh, what they're actually doing is deciding whether to speed up or to slow down the rate of growth of the money supply, the broad uh, M2 uh, the late Milton Friedman taught all of us that uh, inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And uh, and so the uh, Federal Reserve's uh, FOMC controls money supply growth by raising, primarily by raising or lowering the target for the federal funds rate, which is the interest charge that banks and other financial institutions uh, charge each other for overnight loans to meet their reserve requirements at the Fed. Um, and is it right to say that that slows down the borrowing, in other words, the creation uh, of money uh, through the banking institutions? Yes. As, as, uh, as they raise the target for the Fed funds rate, the demand for loans goes down because all other loan, the, the prime rate is directly related to that uh, with a spread currently around three percentage points or 300 basis points and um, all other interest rates are priced off that uh, off that phenomenon uh, one way or another um, small business loans automobile loans home mortgages you name it uh, and as interest rates go up uh, normally uh, economic activity slows some point, ooh, don't hit that button. At some <laughs> and sorry, point, just to just to clarify uh, again, according to Austrian economic business cycle theory, the slowdown is going to occur first in the capital and then in the consumer markets because, uh, well, for reasons uh, that that Austrians go into great detail explaining. Which, I, but is that sort of the phenomenon that you're talking about as well? Right. I mean, it, as so long as you uh, in, include um, consumer investment in housing uh, as capital investment, right. that's obviously. Uh, what occurs. Uh, normally, uh, housing leads us in uh, to recessions and housing leads us out, closely followed, yes, by uh, business fixed investment, obviously. Housing is not leading us out this time, 
and there are a lot of special reasons for that. Uh, but it it doesn't uh, it doesn't change. You know the 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 inverted yield curve is an empirical regularity. It's not a theory. Um, it's simply an observed fact. Uh, every time we've had one uh, that lasted four months or longer, we've had an ensuing recession. Right. So the Just sequence not- is that there's inflation, which the Fed wants to control. So it limits the growth in the money supply by upping the domestic rate or the local rate for short term loans. And that eclipses the long term yields on the bonds. And that means that there's going to be a contraction in the money supply. It's going to hit housing slash capital and then consumer, you know, at some point. Uh, and consumer durables, yeah. Right. Housing, autos, washers, dryers, et cetera. And, uh, and obviously before very long, as those things decline, uh, oh, what a shock. Uh, people start losing their jobs. Uh, and there's, you know, there's an old joke that uh, the definition of a recession is when your neighbor loses his job and a depression is when you lose yours. So the, uh, uh, we certainly have many uh, millions of people around the country who, uh, who lost their jobs between uh, the peak in November 2007 and, and the trough in June of 2009. And there's about six million fewer people employed today than there were in November 2007, although we're certainly moving in the right direction. Uh, namely positive job growth. Uh, but we got that, uh, that signal uh, at the very end of June in 2006 when the FOMC went uh, to uh, five and a quarter percent. Uh, now the other part of it, of course, is that long-term bond investors become quite enthusiastic when they see the FOMC targeting uh, one hopes future inflation rather than a, a current, you know, if they wait until there's a, a problem with inflation, uh, you know, then you, uh, you're you revisiting the horrible, great inflation of the 1970s, and I'm pretty sure that's never going to happen. I'm, I'm 99 and 44 one-hundredths percent certain that will not happen again. <laughs> Now, for those who don't recognize that, who haven't seen the ivory soap commercials from the 1950s, then there you go. <laughs> that's your percentage, right? Because they didn't want to say 22 over 50 or 11 over 25, because that would just be confusing. Now, you've right. quoted uh, Professor Dombach, or the late Professor Dombach of MIT, who says that expansions in the U.S., at least since 1953, have never died of old age. They've always been murdered by the FOMC or the Fed. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that, as well as Milton Friedman's, uh, I guess, Nobel Prize winning insight that, uh, that this sort of monetary policy is always terribly laggy relative to the movement of a relatively free market. Well, yes, that's the, I mean, the let's, let's deal with Dornbush first and, and, uh, and Friedman second. Uh, Dornbush, uh, who died much too young, um, was, uh, was an extraordinarily witty MIT prof who really... Uh, who was German originally and made all his reputation uh, in the international trade and finance area. But he was so funny that he just, like the late Herb Stein, couldn't resist uh, coming out with all these quips, uh, some of which uh, were really good, like his, uh, he actually said murdered in the crib. Uh, It was even a worse (laughs) analogy. And and witty Uh, economists can sort of be standout human beings. I think that's an important thing for people to recognize. Yes. some some of us are rather uh, rather dry and dull, but uh, Rudy was not one of those. Uh, nor was Uncle Milty, as we fondly called him. 
uh, and I hope I'm not either. But uh, in any case, um, all he meant was that uh, they normally, they, the FOMC members, uh, they do wait too long. Um, and, um, of course, there's a lot of people worrying they're doing it again. They're doing it again. Uh, I, I don't think so for a lot of special reasons, but time will tell. But in any case, um, what, uh, what happens uh, is that they, they do get alarmed about uh, inflation um, getting uh, too high. Uh, too high in the United States uh, means a number above 2.0% on the uh, implicit price deflator for personal consumption expenditures. It's a broader index than the consumer price index, which everybody knows about, and it's harder to explain, but it's a more accurate measure of inflation. Um, currently, it's at 1.8% on a year-over-year basis, uh, the latest data we have, which were uh, for March. and. Uh, that would uh, presumably that's why the uh, FOMC members are having such a strong discussion of when to uh, when to start uh, raising rates. Um, there are a number of members of the FOMC who expect that uh, if that number stays at 1.8 percent for three months or so, uh, they'll be raising rates. Uh, in September, October, that's way ahead. Well, that seems to be what the Fed funds futures are saying, but it's way ahead of what most forecasters, you know, many people are saying sometime in 2012 or perhaps even 2013. So that's the that's the Dornbush critique. It's uh, it's 100% accurate. Uh, as I said, not just since 1953, but in all but in, in 17 out of 17 instances since 1901. Uh, we have had four recessions uh, that were not preceded by that uh, indicator, uh, 1938, 1945-46, 1952-53, and there was another one, uh, which were either inventory problems or obviously the mid-1940s was just the enormous changeover from uh, producing goods to, to fight and win World War II to uh, educating all those uh, GIs coming home so we could have the productivity boom that uh, made the U.S. the most amazing economic engine ever seen in the history of the world since 1946. The Friedman critique is much more complicated. Um, there were three reasons um, that he won the Nobel Memorial Prize in economic science in 1976. One was the inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon. One was monetary policy operates with long and variable lags. The third one, which we're not going to go into probably today, was his work on uh, the perma uh, permanent income hypothesis, which is a very uh, accurate view of how consumers actually plan spending and saving over their lifetimes. But the long and variable lag problem uh, simply means um, 
a lot of people use the analogy of comparing what the FOMC does at any given meeting uh, with trying to steer uh, an oil tanker between, uh, you know, say the Persian Gulf and Los Angeles, uh, that if the captain wants to change the course, uh, he has to start about two and a half miles before the ship actually changes direction. Uh, so translate that into monetary policy. And the long and variable lag problem, it can be anywhere from six months after they do something to as long as three years before you see the economic impact. Um, now, no one is clairvoyant. Many people claim to be, but no one is. Uh, and uh, the, uh, uh, so the FOMC needs to be making decisions uh, about the future course of inflation long before we have any evidence of what uh, that is going to be. Similarly, um, they, uh, they, they don't know uh, when a recession will begin. Uh, typically, all but the last case, um, the solution to every post-1953 recession has been cut interest rates, cut interest rates, cut interest rates. If that doesn't work, cut interest rates some more. Well, now we're down to interest rates uh, essentially zero, uh, so they cannot cut any further, so they have to engage in uh, what's called quantitative easing, uh, which is simply an offset for the fact that they can't have negative interest rates. Um, Switzerland periodically interestingly enough, has actually had negative interest rates uh, simply because it is uh, the only country I'm aware of uh, whose currency is totally backed and uh, by gold uh, and uh, therefore uh, it's pretty hard to come up with any way that its currency could depreciate dramatically. I think every gold bug in my audience just went, oh, gold standard, gold standard, I'm going to move to Switzerland. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Well, it's not, it's not a gold standard. They just back the current. It's a, it's a fiat currency, but it's tied to how much gold they have, I, I would assume, with current gold prices. So it's, not, it's not freely exchangeable, but it's tied to, right? Yes. Right, right. Precise, I mean, they have the, the uh, the Swiss National Bank um, has more gold. Uh, I, I started saying its vaults, but I also would bet that most of it is actually in the uh, Federal Reserve Bank in New York vaults, which have about half of all the gold in the world. Right. <laughs> in there, yeah, it's uh, it's a great tour if you can get it. The uh, uh, the the people from uh, I believe it was Die Hard Three. That had the plot of uh, uh, of going after the uh, uh, the gold in the New York Fed uh, was all made up, but it's twelve floors, uh, twelve stories below uh, the bedrock of Lower Manhattan, and uh, and most countries uh, store their gold reserves there. Uh, but in any case, Switzerland has more gold in reserve than it has currency outstanding. But periodically, foreigners want uh, to have a bank account in Switzerland, uh, and uh, so many of them do. That period, it's rare, but it has occurred 
within the last 30 or 40 years that uh, you know you put a hundred dollars in the bank and, uh, and and immediately you know the the <laughs> you, you only have 99.50 or something right it's a lot easier for countries that don't get involved in world wars to stay on, on or similar to the gold standard because of course wars are always paid through paid for at least in the modern age through fiat currency let me throw a couple of uh sorry go ahead by clipping the currency so right right same idea go ahead sorry. let me yeah i want to throw a couple of um arguments at you around exceptionalism to the historical trends uh, for the future there seem to be and i'm paraphrasing the people i've had on this show so you know hopefully they'll forgive me if i've misstated their <laughs> positions but uh, well, there seem to be, own. yeah, there seem to be a number of reasons that people think the future is different from the past. Uh, there are things like, of course, the demographics of the aging baby boomers, associated uh, costs of healthcare and reductions in taxes and increases in social security, all the stuff that economists are very well aware of and have been for some time. Increased regulatory burden, size of government, and the debt, of course, of the U.S. government, which is pretty staggering, although, of course, still better than a lot of countries in Europe. And last but not least, the unfunded future liabilities, everything from Social Security to the billions and billions of dollars that the government owes to uh, retiring public sector workers who aren't uh, funded. And this is one reason why people feel uh, that the future isn't going to be the same as the past, because there's a a constellation or aggregation of factors that appear at least to be without precedent. So I wonder, you know, I just, I'll fire these at you. You can give me your response as to why they're less important than people think. What about the, the demographics, uh, the lowered birth rate in the U.S. Uh, and the, uh, the aging of the population? Do you feel that's less important than people believe? Uh, it's really uh, going to be determined by what we do with immigration policy. If we have a relatively open immigration policy, uh, as many people recommend, um, we'll have plenty of workers to um, to pay the bills of uh, all of the baby boomers retiring. Uh, my personal recommendation would be that we, uh, as quickly as possible, merge with Mexico and solve that problem overnight. But um, that's that's more of a joke than anything else. But. I don't think it's uh, it's likely to occur. Well, economically, uh, there's a strong argument for it, but you might run up against some people's nationalism, which is always a problem, of course. Well, they're, they're yes. I mean, the um, the people who refuse to think about the fact uh, that every single person uh, who is a U.S. citizen today, uh, either that person individually or his ancestors were immigrants. Uh, the only question is how long ago did they come here? Uh, American Indians might have had ancestors who came here 12,000 years ago, so it was a very long time. Uh, but still, we don't have uh, people uh, like you find in Europe or uh, in, in Asia who you know can trace their ancestry back thousands of years uh, with records. Um, there also may be some significant influx in, in um, immigration requests from Europe uh, as, as the European economy seems to be uh, going through some hardship. I know that here in Canada, there's been a huge influx of people trying to get out of Ireland and into Canada uh, because, of course, the economic tiger of Ireland has turned into a rather anemic and debt-ridden monstrosity. So then it may not be Mexico itself. There could be, I think, what many Americans would prefer for a variety of reasons, more of an right. influx from Europe. Well, that, that was Mexico was more of a joke than anything else. I mean, if you if you think about what are the most prosperous parts of Mexico, 
today we call them Arizona, California, <laughs> New Mexico, and Texas. So the uh, uh, it, uh, so maybe a peaceful merger would be a little better than the last uh, the last time around on that one. But sure, um, I, I again I'm I'm in favor of of relatively open immigration. Um, the way it used to be before uh, the 1920s when we got very um, nativist and exclusionary. Uh, and, of course, now we would all welcome the Irish, but there was certainly a time in American history when we didn't. But I think that's the number one um, solution to that problem. Probably number two is to uh, do something like uh, Representative Ryan uh, has suggested and uh, make Medicare um, an, an affordable system. Uh, you know, almost all of our problems relate to health care. Social Security is very easy to fix. Raise the retirement age and uh, change the indexation uh, from prices to wages, uh, and you've solved the whole thing with no tax changes. Um, you know, just actuarially raise the, the retirement age, not make up a number but do it by actuarial science. Uh, the uh, the other... Um, Sorry, let me just make sure I understand that. Sure. So, uh, of course, as, as we all know, the, the Social Security was put in, it was like a, a bonus dollar for making it past the average life expectancy, which was in the low 60s, I think, when it first came in. So use some sort of actua actuarial measure to... Uh, to try and capture the bulge of the population that currently is is exceeding the 65 or where it's lower in the public sector, I think, right. and, and try and sort of make it a ratio that uh, it's not just everybody who goes over that bulge who gets it, but it's relative to some life expectancy that you could get from the actuarial well, no, not, no, 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 that's, that's way too detailed. <laughs> okay, good. Let's make it less detailed. Don't, that's don't, good. Uh, don't, don't tailor it to each individual's life expectancy. But um, you know, it's, it, it was 65 from the time it started in 1942 uh, until um, yeah. until three or four or five years, maybe seven years ago, um, and it's gradually moving up to 67. But actuarially speaking, it should be 73 today. And I don't do it for people within 10 years of retirement, lest you're listeners all have a stroke and say, wait, you know, I can't retire when I've been planning on it for the last 40 years. Actually, if my listeners have a stroke, that would be another way of solving some of their... Anyway, go on. <laughs> <laughs> so let's not, let's not take that approach. Uh, you're, shock you're, people saying you're, you're demographic skews to the older side? Uh, I think I'm sort of a barbell. I have lots of youngers and lots of olders. The middle age is like me, not so much. But uh... huh. Huh. Okay, yes. so it would be a sort of a, a, a collective... Uh, ratio based upon some actuarial tables. Right, right. Well, I mean, right. move it, do exactly what we're doing now, um, but say starting, um, well, I know the Medicare uh, reform suggestion says, you know, anybody who's under age 55 today would be moved into this different system. Uh, simply also for anybody under 55 today, uh, start raising the retirement age um, gradually to 73, which is where it should be, actuarially speaking. Again, I'm not pulling that number out of a hat. But Social Security is easy to fix. Uh, the uh, Medicare, Medicaid are not. You know, oh, Medicare is very popular. Well, sure. 
Uh, Free stuff generally is, right? Yeah, it's called rent-seeking behavior. Uh, Most people love a deal where, uh, you know, they they get something for nothing. Uh, I think statistically they're pulling three bucks of benefits out for every dollar they've paid in contributions. So that's that's a pretty easy thing to sell. Right, and that's gone up uh, dramatically uh, every year. And if you tried to make that... uh, you tried to make Medicare actuarially sound, then why would you need Medicare? Uh, but many people argued that when it got enacted back in the in the 1960s. The uh, if you tour the uh, Harry Truman Library and Museum in Independence, Missouri, uh, you can actually view uh, the desk that bankrupted America, and it's the uh, desk on which uh, Lyndon Johnson signed. Uh, Medicare into law back in uh, 1964, and he sent the desk to President Truman, who had had championed Medicare but couldn't get it through Congress. Uh, LBJ did, and uh, you know that's the reason we're looking at a net present value deficit of you know 60, 70, 80 trillion dollars with a T. Uh, you know the folks up at uh, Boston University. Uh, Keep that number up to date, uh, Joel Kotlikoff and his uh, his colleagues. Um, I, you know, it's more than the net worth of uh, everyone in the United States, which is about fifty five point eight trillion at the end of last year, according to uh, the uh, Federal Reserve Board's flow of funds. So, you know, I mean, my basic response to that is to quote uh, Herb Stein. Uh, trends tend to continue until they become unsustainable, at which time they stop and turn around. And I suppose the other part of that would be, uh, again, the empirical observation uh, that when things get horrible enough, uh, Congress usually does the right thing. Uh, they hardly ever do it in advance, but uh, you know the notion that... Uh, we, we are facing unprecedented challenges, uh, I think is ludicrous. Uh, you know, we had uh, pretty amazing challenges uh, in 1789. How are we going to make the United States work? Thank the good Lord, we had George Washington there, uh, the greatest strategic planner in history, and by far our greatest president, who invented the United States. Then we got invaded by the British. They burned our capital. Uh, Dolly Madison fled the White House with a picture of George Madison, uh, of George Washington. I always wondered what James Madison thought about that. But in any case, uh, you know, pretty traumatic time. Then we uh, we had Andrew Jackson with his brilliant idea of doing away with a central bank and paying off all the national debt. Well, that was a disaster. Then, of course, we had our second greatest president, Abraham Lincoln, who had to to prove that a house divided against itself cannot stand and take every other disaster we've had from, from 1789 until today. And I would say basically today's troubles pale in comparison. A, they're all financial, uh, which means they're all solvable. Uh, we just have to get Congress to understand that. All right. So, um, I would have we can perhaps have another show where we debate uh, the history of the United States. I think that there's some stuff that I would disagree with, but I, I always try and stay on target at these shows, which is always tough for me because there's so many interesting, <laughs> so much interesting stuff that's being said. Um, now, 
what about so okay yeah if if you know if you can raise the retirement age if you can get more immigrants and all these sorts of things if these things can be achieved yes then those problems can be can be addressed to some degree uh what about the the current debt itself you know rolling in at 14 plus a trillion dollars a year and only set to increase so what are your thoughts about because of course the fear that that everybody has is the u.s is going to monetize the debt which you could argue is somewhat underway through uh, qe1 and qe2 and whatever is going to come after this and the bailouts and this and that um, and the monetization of the debt resulting in inflation and all of that kind of Weimar mess. So what are your thoughts about that? <laughs> well, yes, I, I don't think the U.S. Uh, is going to wind up like, uh, uh, you know, like Germany or like uh, Hungary. Many or Argentina, or, yeah. Argentina, the, uh, uh, you know, the, the people who've studied uh, hyperinflations, uh, at least, again, they've proven that there's a real easy way to cure them, stop printing money. Uh, Zimbabwe being a very recent example uh, of that, the first country I know of to actually uh, print a, a trillion dollar bill, uh, which I believe was worth about six cents uh, by the time uh, they stopped uh, running the printing presses. It's a running neck and neck with toilet paper in terms of utility. <laughs> <rest. laughs> well, yes, the, um, uh, the, uh, Hyperinflation in the United States or any other developed country is basically impossible, uh, and the reason is because uh, the bond market vigilantes wouldn't allow it, and the the uh, dollar would collapse, uh, or the currency of any other country that were to try it. Most central banks in the world today, not ours, unfortunately, but most of them have one and only one goal, which is price stability, or even an actual target like zero to two or one to three percent inflation. Uh, I mean, look at uh, Mervyn King at the Bank of England. Every time inflation goes above two percent, every month, I should say, uh, he has to write a letter to the Chancellor of the Exchequer explaining uh, what went wrong, um, because the Bank of England is supposed to keep it below 2%. Uh, the, uh, that's got to be a very embarrassing letter to have to write. Uh, but with, uh, with, with all of our uh, global competitors um, having a, essentially a price stability goal, and only that, uh, there's just no way we could get away with uh, inflating our way out of the debt. Uh, that is what we did in the 1970s. Uh, but we couldn't do it again. Um, because so the bondholders would uh, would start dumping bonds, which would lower the value of the currency, thus causing a change in Fed policy if they tried that. Again, I'm, I'm sorry if I've you know, described no. it too too naively, but is that the general idea? I, I don't see a thing naive about it. I mean, that's, that's the mechanism. Um, and so the other currencies uh, faced that potential because there were fewer bondholders invested in the value of that currency. I mean, who cared, in a sense, outside of Zimbabwe about Zimbabwe's inflation? But because so many people have so much invested in the U.S. currency, they're very keen on protecting its value. Is that a fair way of stating it? It's totally a fair way of stating it. And I said the same is true. You know, you could say exactly the same thing about Canada or Japan or Germany or France or the U.K. or any other developed country. Uh, inflating your way out simply is impossible. Uh, okay, so sorry to interrupt, but if there's no inflation, then there has to be debt pay down 
I guess, a continual debt carrying, which, if the demographic bulge is a problem, seems unsustainable, or defaults. Uh, and of course, all of those, <laughs> you know, here you hear massive disaster scenarios about any of those options. Well, the, the uh, I mean, there is only one logical solution, spend less, or at least dramatically slow the rate of growth of government spending. We can't tax our way out. People, Some people claim that's possible, but it's not. We have uh, pretty high taxes in relation to GDP right now. Uh, we've got to stop spending so much. Uh, Congress is wrestling with that issue. Um, I think there will be a good outcome. I am personally thrilled, uh, as are most of my economist friends, regardless of personal political leanings, that it looks like the 2012 presidential election in the United States is going to be fought on the issue of, uh, you know, should we cut $4 trillion out of future obligations over the next decade or $6 trillion or perhaps more uh, instead of, you know, what can I promise uh, that I can't afford to give away? That's a revolutionary change in the dialogue, and I... Uh, it's hard to see how anything bad can come from that. Uh, well, and of course, the example that, that people could take some comfort in is that Canada in the 90s faced a huge crisis uh, yep. in debt payments, cut government by 10, 15%. Now, admittedly, of course, public, theory, public choice theory dictates that it's always going to start growing again, and that's what's been happening now. But there was a 10 to 15% cut in government's expenditures. And, of course, the, the houses didn't burst into flames. It didn't start raining frozen frogs on innocent children. I mean, you know, so you just people say like there's some savage cut when they're talking about going back to the spending from six years ago. I mean, this is not a savage cut. Savage cut would be going back to the spending of 1820, not, you know, 2004. Right. No, anyway. I mean, we've doubled federal government spending in the U.S. in, uh, in just six years, right. which is insane. Uh, you know, we we uh, it would be great if we could get back to 1998 spending levels. 1898. Uh, I vote for 18. And it's like people people well, who are eating 5,000 calories a day who say, "Well, I have to go down to 4,500 calories a day." <laughs> cannot make a case that they're starving to death. They just can't do it. Although that is always how it's sold. Well, yes. You look back in the 1920s and you note that federal government spending was three percent of GDP. And defense spending was 1% of GDP. And I don't know anybody who could get you back uh, to that kind of level today. Murray Rothbard would be one person who comes to mind. But anyway, okay. Uh, Murray Rothbard, he was a, um, oh, right. a stateless yes. society kind of guy. Yeah, by 3% would be pretty tough. Yeah, and but I think that in the 1920s, America did not face many threats of imminent invasion or terrorist activity, even with only a 1% uh, defense spending budget. So it's uh, something to remember for everybody um, out there. Yes, but uh, not, uh, you know, not even uh, or only uh, a little over a decade later, we found out uh, that we should have been spending a little more on defense because, uh, you know, then we ran the defense budget up to 40% of GDP. Uh, which uh, which did the trick, but uh, uh, was uh, was certainly I I would assume painful at the time. Uh, you know I, I I have to look in a history book to uh, to figure it out. But uh, the uh, you know we've we've been in uh, uh, in 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 giant pickles in the past. Uh, you know in the 
the Great Depression uh, was totally caused by bad government policies. The Smoot-Hawley tariff, raising taxes and allowing the money supply to shrink by a third, uh, you know, nobody understood at the time that when banks go broke and you don't have deposit insurance, the money supply shrinks. Well, I think uh, not only the citizens of the United States, but the entire world is unbelievably lucky to have Ben Bernanke where he is today. He's by far the leading living scholar of the causes and consequences of the Great Depression, uh, and we're not going to revisit that experience. All right. There's one final argument that uh, I'd like you to to take a swing at. Uh, Tyler Cowen uh, has recently written, I can't remember the title, it's quite long-winded, and I'm certainly not <laughs> one to talk about being long-winded, but uh, he basically says that a lot of the low-hanging fruit of economic efficiencies has been sort of picked in the post-war period, and one of the reasons that you know something which is unprecedented in u.s economic history at least in a longer period of time is the sort of stagnation and even slight decline in middle class uh, incomes and to some degree lower class incomes particularly if you take out um, sort of income redistribution that there has been a softening of economic growth for the middle classes upper classes as always are doing beautifully but uh, there has been a, a sort of wage stagnation part of his argument is that it just it gets harder and harder to be more productive once you've got the low-hanging fruit out of the way uh, do you think that this may be an argument for a sort of uniqueness uh, and this ties into what I mentioned earlier about sort of hyper-regulation or, or increased regulations of, of U.S. business and all of that sort of stuff, that there may be an argument that one of the ways you know you're in a unique situation is that something is happening now that hasn't happened before, such as this softening of real wages for a lot of Americans. Well, the, you know, probably most of that will get revised away. A, B, there's uh, you know 20% of the people at both ends of the income distribution uh, fall out of that category every year. Uh, so we're still the most economically mobile society in the history of the world, and most of that is uh, related to the degree of education. So the more education you have, the higher the probability. You'll be in the upper part of the income distribution. The fastest way to solve that would be to have a, a national commission on regulatory reform that work just like the base closing commissions that we've had four or five times, have it be created by Congress, review every regulation uh, that we have on the books, um, put in a set of recommendations, uh, eliminate this, this, and this so that we match costs and benefits. Uh, it's estimated the deadweight loss of the regulatory burden in the U.S., which means the excess of costs over benefits, is about $1.2 trillion, so almost 10% of GDP. If you could free that up, you could solve all of our problems uh, very quickly, and I don't hear anyone talking about that. Instead, we're piling on more regulations, like this new Consumer Financial Protection Board and all, all the other parts of Dodd-Frank and heaven help us if the uh, health care stuff uh, all comes to fruition. Uh, we never repeal the old regulations. We just keep adding new ones. And, you know, almost 10% of GDP would be very nice to put into productive activity and paying down that dr drastic national debt. 
Yeah, not to mention, of course, doing something to simplify this absolutely insane tax code that that just piles. Oh, yeah. So you, you're killing trees by the hundreds of thousands just to print that stuff. And so that would be another thing, having Go trillions of dollars wasted tax. on that. Yeah. Go for the fair tax. They repeal the repeal the 16th Amendment and uh, pay 23% of all consumption and have a, a subsidy that goes to households uh, with incomes below 50000 a year. Watch the economy boom. Watch the deficit shrink. Uh, and watch us look for some whole new set of problems to worry about <laughs> down the road. Now Which we have too much fun. time on our hands. What are we going to do with it all? I guess we're so rich. <laughs> well, listen, I really, really appreciate your time. It's been a very, very fascinating conversation, and uh, I appreciate your insights. I'm very happy to, uh, to bring some uh, positivity to the discussion on economics that's been going on at least through this show. Uh, and uh, I certainly look forward to feedback from people who, who uh, when they experience the elephant of doom slowly sitting up from their chest, <laughs> feel the need to crush something other down with it and let me know how you or I or everyone in this show is wrong. Uh, and I'll say afford some, some of that onto you if that might be of interest to you. And I, I really do appreciate your time. Oh, yeah. No, I'd love to see that. All right. 3.3% growth has held for 80 plus years now. I don't see why it won't continue. All right. Well, uh, time will tell for sure. And I, I really do appreciate your time. Thanks again. Thank you, Stefan. Bye-bye. Bye.